I was just like, you fucking asshole. How dare you do that to me? How dare you diminish me down to useless stereotypes that have fuck all to do with me and my life and who I am and deliver it as a joke? From Soho Media Club, this is Naked Stories, a series taking you into the inner world of the media industry where prejudice and glass ceilings are laid bare. Stories that are hard to tell out in the open but have the power to change the future. Produced by PRL Studio, I'm Roses Okipo. Welcome to Episode 8. Dinosaurs. We cannot change what we are not aware of. And once we are aware, we cannot help but change. Cheryl Sandberg. Wherever life plants you, bloom with grace. Our guest today is Dahlia. Dahlia is an executive producer who grew up in a villagey district of North London with her siblings. She was raised during the 70s by her GP father and her mother, who was a nurse. The nosy neighbour peeping through the net-curtained kitchen window might have concluded that this was a normal 2.4 family. However, behind closed doors of the big London house, Dahlia's relationship with her mother was strenuous. I had quite a difficult relationship with her. She didn't really... (laughs) Sounds really awful. I know she loved me, but I don't think she liked me very much. You know what I mean? The way that parents can have that thing with kids where they don't necessarily get on that well. Luckily for me, I got on brilliantly with my dad. My dad was my saviour. So he, you know, he really... um, And my siblings, my older siblings were fantastic. At only 11 years old, tragedy struck Dahlia and her family. At the studio, we were all silenced when Dahlia revealed what had happened. And soon we discovered that Dahlia's mum's behaviour was a mask for a hidden underlining secret battle. I think the thing is, the thing about my mum is she had quite serious mental health issues. As a family, we've only diagnosed in retrospect. We're all pretty convinced she was bipolar. It was quite mixed in terms of how, so outwardly she was fun, exciting, really gregarious and and all of those things. And, And at home, she was either that or she was really down and in bed. So the big story about my family is that my mum killed herself. And it was all over the local press and it was all over the village and it was everywhere. So, and that happened in the Easter term before I went to my secondary school. So it had a huge, obviously it had a huge psychological impact on me and my siblings. Back in the 70s, there was little education on mental health. And if you were suffering, it was encouraged to be a private matter. So you can only imagine the bizarre mixed reactions to Dahlia's mum's death. So the issue about that was not only was it incredibly traumatic, but at the time, nobody knew how to deal with it, including all the people that we knew. So some of the people we knew were really uh, straightforward and would just say, look, I'm really, really sorry to hear about your mum. She was an amazing person. You know, I'm really sorry if there's anything I can do, blah, blah, blah. Others would just literally walk on the other side of the street rather than talk to us because they were so embarrassed they did not know what to say. What I noticed, which I don't know if is kind of retrospective rewriting, but what I noticed, it was the ordinary, inverted commas, people. So the bus driver, the guy that worked at the grocers, the postman. It was those people that were really straightforward about it and just were really you know, weren't embarrassed by it and would just say to me, your mum was an amazing person, you know, you know, that sort of stuff. But it was all the sort of posh, 
uptight ones that just didn't talk to us. It was really bizarre, really, really bizarre. And it was in the 70s. You know, it's still a massive taboo, but it was even more of a taboo then. We, it was complicated because my dad was a GP. It was all felt very kind of protective and, you know, like we, we were meant to deal with it ourselves. Nowadays, there is a lot of bereavement support. But to be fair, not a lot has changed in the way people react to someone else's loss. It is hard. Schools play an essential role in providing emotional well-being for our kids today. But when Dahlia had to return to primary school after her mum's suicide, the support was non-existent and the reactions were another episode of Bizarre Behaviours. So I went back to my primary school. Nobody talked about it at primary school. None of the teachers talked about it. None of the kids talked about it. It was like it hadn't happened. It was really, really bizarre. And then when I got to secondary school, again... Nobody talked about it. Nobody mentioned it. I mean, I got into sort of weird events like, you know, with your gym kit, you have to have your initials embroidered. And they'd say, um, why haven't you got your... And I'd go, oh. Uh. And they'd go, why hasn't we... Why Why don't you get your mother to do it? And then it was like, uh, ooh, uh, 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 uh. Um, well, uh, you need to get somebody... Do you know what I mean? It was those kind of weird discussions. So... Dahlia vividly recalls how the traumatic episode in her life had an impact on her own behaviour. Yeah, I mean, as an eight-year-old, I was very bolshy, very cocky, very confident, very... I was always boyish, described as boyish. It's really interesting. I was, you know, I always wanted to wear boys' clothes and, um, I mean, I'd get shoved into dresses and sort of, you know, like the attention that that gave me. And, oh, you've got beautiful long blonde hair and don't you look gorgeous in that dress and blah, blah, blah. But I never felt right. I always wanted to be in a pair of jeans and a pair of baseball boots and mucking about. So, um, yeah, I think it, I think it crushed me completely, really. It made me feel other. I've got a really good friend who's straight, who's very successful, and his dad killed himself when he was a kid. And we've talked quite a lot about the differing effects that that has on you, um, aside from my sexuality or anything else. And he, he always said, you know, it was the making of him. And it really made him strong and it made him sort of more confident and it made him the person that he is. And I kind of feel like it had the opposite effect on me. It crushed my confidence. I mean, what it did give me is an ear and an instinct for the underdog and for other people that, that maybe aren't, weren't seen as winners then. So I think it's given me that, but it definitely sort of crushed me in a way. Still in shock and trying to process her new normal, Dahlia made a transition from primary to secondary school and got her place at an all-girls secondary school in London. Elitist, swanky and stuck up. Competition was fierce. Dahlia knew this wasn't her jam. She knew she was about to not fit in. Personally, I think I probably would have been much happier just going to the local mixed school. I think I probably would have. And in the end, actually, I became good friends with a bunch of people from my local mixed school. You know, or just an ordinary comprehensive. I think I probably would have been a lot happier rather than being in a really sort of competitive, quite sort of bitchy is probably... And I use that term very carefully, very, very carefully, but that was... It could very easily get like that at that school. The subjects of mums was just awkward. And so I'd get into weird stuff about, you know, pretending she died of cancer and then feeling really guilty and sort of trying to avoid any discussions around mothers, really. She kissed a girl and she liked it. So fucking what? But back in the days, sorry Dahlia, this was grounds for exclusion and humiliation. 
I was witnessed snogging another girl from the year above me. And this was by a friend. And even though I sort of begged her not to tell anybody. So that was the Saturday night. So then I rang my friend on the Sunday night and said, look, I know you saw what happened. Please don't tell anybody because my life will not be worth living. And she said, oh, yeah, no, no, it's, don't worry, it's fine. Spoiler alert. By Monday morning, everyone knew. She then told told somebody in the class and it just spread around. I mean, again, in hindsight, hindsight is a very, very useful thing. And I think for her, actually, she was maybe jealous. Well, whatever it was, it ended up so that... And this is a very familiar story to my friends because they've all heard it time and time again. But I ended up in a double biology class where, unfortunately, they were discussing heterogeneous and homogeneous chromosomes. So obviously, every time homogeneous chromosomes were mentioned, the whole class cracked up. And so then we went to a double art lesson. By the time we got to the double art lesson, nobody would sit next to me. So literally not being talked to, not being sat next to, not having no contact. I really don't blame her. I don't blame her. What I do blame is that pack mentality. That That's what I hate, is that idea about excluding someone. That's what I really find very difficult to deal with and I I have never done that to anybody. The aftermath of some storms we experience is a way to clear the grounds for new beginnings. Had the incident not have happened, Dahlia would have never formed a friendship which still stands strong today. What did happen is one girl who I had been friends with came and sat next to me. And from then on, we were like a unit, and she's still my best friend now. So what I got out of that horror and being excluded and being, you know, and then lots of gossip around the school and all of that stuff, I had her. So, and she's, what I find really interesting, she's much braver than I am. I wouldn't have done that. I know I wouldn't have done that. There's no, I mean, I speak up for people, but I'm not, there's always a bit of me that's scared of being bullied again, whereas she just was like, Fuck it, I don't care what they think. What's going on? Why is nobody? Why is everybody being mean to her? What's happening? So, so I, I, it was positive in that sense. Why was Dahlia so fearful of being found out? It was a girls' school, so you know. I mean, actually, there were bloody female teachers that had affair with, affairs with six formers. So, so it's not like they could kick us out. But it was just the shame. It sounds so ridiculously old now, but there was a whole. Uh, lesbian friends, homo, you don't. That was like a thing that was shouted at people. If there was any inclination that you maybe fancied other girls, it'd be, oh, lesbian friends, homo, you don't. It was the 70s. There was great culture shame and a stigma attached to lesbianism, which was accentuated by the content on television. Contextually, in terms of telly and culture and things like that. So there was this series called Within These Walls, which was set in a prison. All of the lesbians killed themselves, or they always had really sick kind of bullying relationships with each other. Any films you saw, the relationships were really sick and sort of just made you feel really kind of, ugh. you know, there was a real sort of visceral feeling attached to it, which I struggled with because I knew that wasn't me and that wasn't how my relationships were. But those that, those were the sort of messages, I guess, you were getting in terms of society in the 70s and 80s. You just sort of, yeah, there was no, there was no kind of, there was no pride in, in being open about who you were. There was just shame and very specific gay shame. 
which is that kind of ugly feeling. And it, it, it's interesting, I've spoken to a lot of my gay men friends about it, and I think for gay men, it's a, it's a particular gay shame, and for lesbians, it's, a, it's another particular shame. But it's sort of, you carry it, really, through millennia of, of punishment and whatever. Internally damaged by the bullying and constant media shaming of lesbianism, Dahlia questioned herself. Oh, I should go out with a boy. I should, you know, I should go out with boys. I shouldn't go out with girls. You know, there's no future for me if I go out with girls. Everybody thinks everybody thinks it's sick. Everybody thinks it's wrong. Um, and I did go out with boys as well. But the problem was I just wanted to be friends with them. I didn't fancy them. I think I broke a few hearts along the way. And... I don't condone violence, but a few swift slaps might have stopped the bullies. This is just not her character, though. And that's okay. I think what I do is I stand up to people on other people's behalf, but I'm not so good at standing up to people on my own behalf, is my my thing. And that thing about talking about my best friend who rescued me, and I know I wouldn't have been that that girl at school. I just know I wouldn't have been, which I'm ashamed, ashamed of. But it kind of, that sort of fed into my experience and how I now, I like to think I now treat people I work with. Dali moved to Brixton to attend uni. I lived in a street in Brixton, which there used to be short life housing, which is very like guardian housing. So there were sort of houses that the council were trying to keep for council tenants, but they didn't have the money to do them up yet. So you'd live as short life tenants in them. So you'd live in them for sort of two years, three years, whatever. And it meant they had no central heating and, you know, like R1 had an outside loo and we had to build the bathroom. Yeah, so it was quite, it was quite full on, but um, there was a whole, there were like four or five houses in the street. Doing these interviews, there is a reoccurring pattern of finding your tribe to find yourself. It was when she went to university that Dahlia found hers. I was really excited about going to college, really excited about going to college because it felt like I can be who I want to be and I can find the women's group, which is where the lesbians were, (laughs) and I can find the lesbian and gay group, I can find those people, I can find my tribe, I can find my people and I'll be safe and it won't be a big deal. And that's what I did. I had a brilliant time. Yeah, it was really, felt really energising. When I went to uni and found women's groups and lesbian and gay groups and those kind of places, then I really became very politicised and was sort of, on, you know, went on marches and got arrested on things and, and felt like I'd kind of found my my tribe, which I sort of did. You know, it was very, it was really thrilling. It was really, really thrilling to be a... a you know, it was okay to go to the barbers and get get all your hair cut and wear boots and jeans and flight jackets and, you know, like, you know, there's black flight, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And, and, and for that to be attractive and sort of, and not to be made to feel like the ugly dyke. And it was really exciting and lots of, you know, a lot of parties, a lot of clubbing, lots of dancing, lots of sex, you know, very politicised. And that was amazing to me to suddenly feel like this is like positive. Homophobic abuse was nothing new to Dahlia and her crew. We got rocks thrown through our windows quite a lot. I had to reglaze the front. In the end, I got so fed up with putting new glass in the front of the windows, I put bus shelter plastic in so that they bounce back. And I, I kind of knew it wasn't, you know, they weren't going to kind of come in and kill us. I knew it was probably kids. It was probably local kids because of all these lesbians knocking around. But it was quite scary. It was really quite scary. And I didn't want to live there on my own. I really definitely didn't want to live there on my own with that going on. So I left. 
Intersectionality has recently taken on more space in public discussions about feminism, but it's certainly not new. It did get quite difficult at one point around intersectionality. What's really funny now is it feels like, you know, we were kind of going through all of that in the 80s. There's lots of discussion around racism, around class, around privilege, around, you know, all of that was milling around and we were all going to sort of quite mixed clubs and all sort of interacting with each other. Felt like there was a sudden sort of a kind of class war erupted, really. Not so much around racism, but around, definitely around class, because there were a lot of middle-class lesbian feminists, basically, involved in this whole community. Unfortunately, I ended up going out with somebody who the rest of the extended group of, of people decided was masquerading as a working-class woman. Well, she wasn't a rich girl. I mean, that was the irony. She wasn't a rich girl. I mean, you know, if you want to get into the real nitty-gritty of class definition, maybe she was upper working class, lower middle class. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's. it wasn't about that. I don't think it was about that. I think they were threatened by her for some on a personal level or, I don't know, maybe one of them fancied me or it wasn't actually about that at all. It was, but those were the reasons that were given. What they were saying is that she's masquerading as this middle-class woman. She's actually much more privileged than she's making out, and that's really wrong. So basically what happened is we got excluded. Again. <laughs> Deja Vu came into effect as Dahlia started reliving the feelings of exclusion she had gone through at school. Was she ready to confront the bullies this time? My girlfriend at the time was really cross about it and was really feisty and was really arguing the case but I just didn't want to I was scared of them and it sort of brought back all the sort of bullying stuff that that, that, that happened the last time and I just thought this is so ironic and it yeah it's really funny so I left South London and moved to North London and just avoided that group History repeats itself endlessly for those who are unwilling to learn from the past Dahlia clocked my facial expression of, girl! It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's completely ridiculous. But that was, it was so heightened at the time. You think about, you know, Section 28 was around AIDS. The whole terror around AIDS was going on. You know, it was really, it felt very radical to be out and to be visibly who you were really and the sadness for me is that we'll is, is that we just ended up taking it out on each other and because of my experience I didn't have the guts to say fuck off basically you're being ridiculous it's my business who I go out with and it's her business how she wants to define herself I just ran a flashback to the 80s blue eyeshadow neon leg warmers and perms are the staples of this era but Dahlia's right it was also a time when many subjects were taboo and being different was not tolerated. This didn't stop the underground rebels and their heated conversation and public protests. Dahlia studied film and photography as a BA in London. She got her first break into film and opportunity followed close after. I did work experience as, as an assistant film editor for about six months. I did a combination of motorcycle dispatch riding and when I wasn't doing dispatch riding, then I'd sort of work, work experience as, a, as an assistant film editor. And then eventually I got a paid job. So then I stayed in editing for about six years and then met uh, somebody who was a researcher and we started coming up with ideas. And then we, it was at the sort of, Channel 4 had been going for a few years by then, but they had a... A special unit called the Independent Film and Video Unit. 
which was run by a lesbian, some black people and some sort of lefties. <laughs> and it was like a special unit to make minority films. And so, but it, you know what? It was amazing because that gave me, that gave me my first opportunity to make a film. It's extraordinary, really, when you think about it. They were making, they were commissioning people to make films about their own stories, which was really amazing at the time. And I, do, I genuinely don't think I would have got into the industry if it hadn't been for, for that opportunity. And I made a number of films for them and I made documentaries for BBC. Most people are drawn to the industry because of the wide range of content you could work on. They have stories they want to tell, so it's draining to see the same storyline played out on the big screen. And to hear they're boxed in to make the same type of programmes we have seen time and time again. It makes no sense, but still goes on today. And I then got a little bit stuck because a good friend of mine said to me, I think you've got too many lesbian and gay things on your CV and that's why you're not getting the jobs that you want to get. Because I wanted to get, you know, by then I was directing and I, and I wanted to get some really sort of big films, really, um, documentaries anyway. I think they thought, oh, that's all she can do. I think they thought, oh, that's, that's not us, that's them. And that's all that person can, can do. They can only do stuff about that. I felt really frustrated. I felt really, really frustrated. She said to me, I think you should take most of the lesbian and gay stuff off your CV and see what happened. And it worked. <laughs> Depressing though that may seem, it definitely worked. Was this the right thing to do? For my career, it was definitely the right thing to do. Without a doubt, it was definitely the right thing to do. And that's awful, isn't it? It is absolutely awful. And this friend of mine that suggested it to me said it in the most sensitive helpful way you know she was really but she was right she was absolutely right and so having taken off the references to her gay and lesbian work has Dahlia ever revisited this genre in the end bizarrely enough I haven't really done much about lesbians and gay men since then the work I've done has been much wider I've done a lot of stuff about women certainly I haven't done anything specifically about about lesbians and gay men since I feel really weird about it now, actually, because I kind of, for ages, it was really difficult to get specifically gay stories away. So after the independent film and video unit, and there was this hilarious show on BBC called Gay Time TV, that was it. And I ended up working on that. Um, and I think that was the point at which somebody said, look, take it off your CV because it's just not helping. But so it was either very specifically, and then there was all this rubbish about integrated casting and oh yeah, no, no, we just we just want to cast gay characters as part of everything else. And of course, for many, many years, documentaries remained straight, white, everything else. What's really brilliant is drama has changed a lot. I feel like drama's really led the way in that sense, in terms of casting and also storylines. And, you know, and I have to say, Strictly, Nicola Adams on Strictly, I've whooped when I saw that news. Literally, I was like, fuck, I cannot believe it. A butch dyke, you know, and she's very openly a butch dyke on Strictly. You know, that's extraordinary. How important is it to Dahlia and the LGBTQ plus to have lesbian or gay contributors to a programme about the gay community? I'm all for inclusion and everything else, but I also think there's something quite specific around the culture and the experience of that that needs its own sort of light shining on it, if you know what I mean. It's a kind of difficult balance to get right, which is why I would always argue, I think if something's 
being made about any community, that there are people from that community that are working on it in a sort of key editorial way. Television and society does look very different from how it did in the 80s and early 90s. Hmm, kind of. But I do think, you know, I mean, telly and British culture is so much. I mean, it's extraordinary what's happened. Just in my career, how things have changed. It's unbelievable. If you told the 15-year-old me that, that Nicola Adams and an out-butch black lesbian would be on the biggest mainstream show on BBC One, I would definitely not believe you. Well, women, slowly, 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 <laughs> but sort of getting there. Black representation, sort of getting there. And I mean, unfortunately, it's taken George Floyd's death for that to actually have some groundswell behind it. What's ironic to me is the sort of notions of intersectionality that I was in the midst of in the 80s when I was living in, in Brixton are now mainstream. And that's really funny because at the time and this is going to sound really disparaging but actually I think most of my gay men friends would agree with this gay men were out dancing and having sex basically that's what they were doing you know <laughs> they were at heaven they were doing that and meanwhile there was this small group of very active lesbian feminists who were who were sort of living that intersectional or trying to fight that battle in some way even just amongst ourselves and then however many years later, it feels really mainstream and like that's a really ordinary, common thought to have. It's interesting. We were talking about racism, we were talking about class and opportunity, we were talking about basic, you know, sexism, around homophobia, around paedophilia, around, you know, about representation of women and representation of... So all of that, we were dealing with all of that in a very intense way. I think the, the issue with it is we were only talking about it amongst ourselves. We were never sort of taking that out there anywhere. And to be honest, I don't think anybody would have been interested anyway. It was just an early battleground, really. Well, I think now those debates are, are, are commonplace. PC is, is, a, is a term and intersectionality is a term and, you know, LGBTQ plus A plus whatever is a term. Do you know what I mean? It's all, it now feels part of British culture, whereas then it felt like it was just an it was a debate that was going on amongst a very small amount of people. Filmmaking is not a family-friendly process. So whether you are straight or gay, for women, the juggling act of making films and raising babies just feels unattainable. I made a sort of career decision to stop directing and to start series producing and eventually aiming towards execing because I wanted to have children. And I felt like that just wasn't going to work. I couldn't carry on directing and have kids or I couldn't get pregnant and do all of that. But that career decision was more driven by that. And there is a bit of me that that regrets having stopped directing, especially now that women are getting so much more sort of attention and opportunity. In the end, you know, you make your decisions really, don't you? Women who got pregnant, who were in the industry, were married to blokes that could have well-paid jobs and blah, blah, blah. And so, I mean, that's the other thing that's really interesting about for lesbians, lesbian couples tend to earn less money because they're two women. And so it's not like I could rely on my partner to work and support me. That was never going to happen. We got talking about Dahlia's experience of being on the receiving end of homophobic and idiotic insults in film and TV. She pauses, and I can see she's prepared herself to share one particular story. 
I have wondered a lot about whether I should talk about this because I haven't confront I haven't spoken to him about it. He probably doesn't even remember it. I was at a at a television briefing not long before COVID. Loads of people there. And this guy who I know walked past me, turned to me, and said, Oh, it's you. From the back, I thought you were blah blah, who's quite a well-known gay male director. And then I came round the front and I thought, oh no, it's Ellen DeGeneres. I was so shocked. I just didn't know what to say. And the sad thing about that event, right, is I was absolutely crushed by that comment. I was just like, you fucking asshole! How dare you do that to me? How dare you diminish me down to useless stereotypes that have fuck all to do with me and my life and who I am and deliver it as a joke, as a funny comment? Now... I've really struggled with that and I kind of and I've also really struggled about whether to tell this story because he'll know he made that comment and his colleague who was with him will know he made that comment. This throwaway clueless comment projects cockiness and the impact immeasurable. I think he probably thought it was a joke. It was really funny, but I just think anybody with half a brain in their head would understand how insulting a thing that is to say to somebody. And I know it's not necessarily appropriate to move the section, but if he said that about a disabled person, if he said, oh, I thought you were Tanny Gray Thompson and then I thought you were... Or if he said that about a black person or an Asian person or anybody, he just wouldn't say that. He'd know he couldn't get away with saying that. And yet, for some reason, he felt like it was funny. As Dahlia recalls this episode, I can see it running through her mind. The scene is rewinding, pausing playing out. To think this happened just before lockdown, mind-blowing. And it was so ironic to me that I was in this briefing and there were gay men, out gay men, on the panel. I was very, I mean, what I should have done, really, I'm, you know, I probably should have emailed him or confronted him about it and then reported it back to the gay people who I knew who were at that event because it's not okay for him to say say things like that to people, really not. And he needs to understand why it's not funny. And I told, I've told quite a few people about it in the industry and it really disturbed me. And it upsets me now to talk about it. I think that's because, because of all the stuff we've been talking about. You know, all of those kind of stereotypes that people carry with you when they see this short head. You know, now I'm older, I'm in my 50s and I'm, you know, I worry about being the grumpy old dyke who's banging on about diversity, still banging on about that or, you know, or being PC about this. You know, that's a paranoia that I have with me. He is an adult. He knew what he was doing. We can argue that he didn't know the extent of hurt he would cause. But then, don't say shit unless you have nice shit to say. On the flip side, he probably used his position and power to make Dahlia feel inferior. Even if Dahlia didn't have a past experience of bullying, this kind of incident isn't an easy one to confront. I, for one, wouldn't know how to handle this. It was very sharp of him. He saw that, but it doesn't make it okay for him to to have done that. And now I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to talk to him about it. I mean, part of me feels like I can't be fucking bothered to waste my energy, to be honest. But I guess what I'm conscious of is I've told other people in the industry about it and I haven't confronted him. It's really funny. When when that happened, I had very similar visceral reaction of of when I was bullied at school and all of that stuff. It makes me scared. It stops me. What I should have done is I should have turned around to him and said, you fucking asshole! How dare you say that to me? 
You know, is that what I'm reduced to? A gay man and a famous lesbian? You know, that's what I should have said. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, five minutes later, you think, fuck, why am I saying? But actually, I was scared. You know, I had a sort of, I'm not proud of that reaction at all, but I had that bullied feeling. You know, that, oh, fuck, 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 you said something really horrible and I just want to get out of here. You know, I can't defend myself. I know that's what I'm so angry about, is I didn't defend myself and I wish I had. And I told other people they've been a bit like meh about it. I think I just I just have that kind of feeling scared thing. What does being scared feel like for Dahlia? Well, it just feels being frightened and, and worrying about confronting somebody and what they're going to say and how you're going to defend yourself. That's the thing about how you defend yourself. You know, we've talked about it and I've been very clear and quite strong about how I feel about it. But then my worry is as soon as I have that debate with somebody, all of that just disappears out of my head and I'm just going, blah, 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 blah. I didn't like it. It was mean, you know. Um, <laughs> and so my sort of capacity for defending myself just disappears. I get a real adrenaline rush, you know, that kind of scared sort of sort of adrenalized feeling. Um, I definitely had that after he said that to me. I was like really quite in shock. And what I, what's so funny is he probably did think it was a joke and it was friendly. And yet the gap between his thought about how he delivered that and my experience is so enormous and gulf-like. You know, it has made me think, well, am I overreacting? But I don't think I am, actually. I genuinely don't think I am. You look at it in any situation, I don't think I am. I guess the thing about not defending myself is just, you know, if you want to sort of psychoanalyse the situation, I think it just takes me back to being a child and having all that negative attention about my mum and then all that negative attention about being a lesbian and it just it just unsettles me. It's very visceral, the feeling it, it, it gives me. This is really pissing me off. It's not OK and it should not be treated as normal behaviour or a joke. No, actually, it's really not okay. Because you move that comment, he would never have said that. He would never, ever, ever have said that about somebody from another community in that setting. He just, you just know he wouldn't have done. But for some reason, it was okay to say it to me. It's not a joke because, A, I look nothing like the gay man that we both know that he referred to. You know, he referred to a, a mutual friend of ours who I look nothing like. I mean, he's taller than me. Maybe he's got short grey hair. He looks nothing like me. And also, I don't think I really look much like Ellen DeGeneres, to be honest. So it's that it's that reducing you down to a stereotype. It's like, oh, these are the only gay people I know, I can think of. And, you know, he might as well have said, oh, from the back I thought you were Alan Carr. And then I came round and I thought, oh no, it's Susan Cowman. It's, it's not funny. I feel a bit uncomfortable about, about saying this, but if he had said, right, if he'd said, oh, from the back, I thought you looked like Mo Gilligan, and from the front, I thought, oh, no, it's Nicola Adams, and I was a black person, that would not be funny. If you were to say, do you know what I mean? Whoever, whichever group you came from, if you reduce you down to a, a stereotype of something, then it's not funny. Dahlia tries to give him the benefit of the doubt, but she knows his comment was menacing. I mean, maybe he was trying to be friendly. You know, maybe it was a misguided attempt at being friendly. That That's also possible, right? He thought, oh, you know, I can joke about this. Because that is the other thing. You, he should know well enough that you don't joke about things like that. Unless you're in the clan, you don't joke about it. It's like the D word. It's like, the you know, I know the difference between somebody using the word dyke as an insult and somebody using it as just a, a way to, another way to refer to a lesbian. You know, you know the difference. You just know 
the way it's delivered, everything. So maybe he thought it was he was being friendly, but that's not how you're friendly with somebody. You don't reduce somebody down to their sexuality. That's the thing. Like you don't reduce somebody down to their disability. You don't reduce somebody down to their race. You just do not do that. And I worry for him that he thought it was okay to do that. But maybe it was. Maybe it was. Maybe he thought it was a friendly comment. He could well have done actually. Could very well have thought that's a friendly comment, but I kind of think in this day and age he probably knows it's not. Well, it's really, I have really, as you can tell, I've really, really struggled over whether to tell this story because, you know, and, and equally I kind of makes me paranoid. It makes me think, oh, maybe I'm making a big fuss about it. Maybe he was just being friendly. Maybe he was just making a joke. It's really not that bad, blah, 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 blah. And I think whatever it was, it shows zero understanding of what it feels like to be me in the industry, to be part of a minority in the industry. That's what it shows. Yeah, it's fine, I can joke about it, I'm part of the gang. No, you can't. And I'm, I'm not sure I feel that comfortable with constantly making comparisons to other communities, because I don't, they're different nuances and different experiences, and I'm not saying it's the same as experiencing racism, not for a moment. But there are certain part, you know, there are certain sections that kind of cross over in terms of experience. And that impacts you and it impacts your personality and how you react to people and what people say to you. Dahlia analyzes his thought process while she's relaying the story. I have an unsettling thought and had to ask, was this behavior idiotic banter or rooted homophobia? He probably thought it was a joke. He thought it was funny. He thought it was friendly. But behind that, you have to ask the question, if you're going to think that's funny or you're going to think that's a friendly thing to do, then you've really got to question your own unconscious bias <laughs> in many, many, on many, many levels because I kind of feel like in any setting, that's not okay. Sharing this story was a big step. Although Dahlia had been slightly apprehensive about it, I appreciate that she's been able to openly share her experience. Asking about someone's sex life is considered a pretty big invasion of privacy. So why do men find it okay to ask about it or make inappropriate questions? It's crazy that I have to say this, but please note, gay people, just as any other stranger or acquaintance you meet, don't owe anyone an explanation of their life. I've had various conversations with tend to be older, more powerful telly blokes that have certainly been on the sort of ugly side, if you know what I mean. Just a bit pervy and a bit conversation gets pushed in a particular, you know, like you get taken out for lunch because they're interested in hiring you for a job and the conversation just goes a particular way. I've had that a lot where you're just like, I don't see what this has got to do with me doing this job, you know, what I do with my partner. So I definitely know, I've definitely noticed that. There was one particular lunch. It was virtually, it was bare, near neither what do you do in bed. Really, it was that kind of, it was that, those sort of questions where you just can feel your skin crawl and you're like, ooh, this is really, why are you asking me about my partner and why are you asking about that? But it's done in a very sort of easy kind of flowing way. It's gaslighting is what it is really, but it's in a sort of let's have lunch and talk about this job. My experience of, of them has been powerful straight white men. They're powerful men, they can, it's not exactly Harvey Weinstein, but it's on that spectrum, it's on that journey, it's that, that kind of, I can ask you whatever I want. 
Dali is often found that her sexuality has arrived before her as an individual. And it doesn't stop there. Being assertive and not putting up with that shit triggers men to say she's too safe, too PC. No, don't be so PC, come on, you know, whatever. And I hate that, fucking hate that. I'm like, what do you mean? What does that mean? Well, I know what it means. I know what it means. It means stop arguing for women, for black people, for gay people, for disabled. Stop arguing for, you know, stop making me feel bad as a straight, powerful man in this industry is what it means, I think. That makes me feel a bit guilty. That makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, actually. So just shut the fuck up. It's insidious. It's very rarely said that clearly, but you know that's what's going on. Absolutely know that. You know that's what's going on. Jeez Louise. Will there be an end to this pathetic behaviour? They're on their way out. And that feels brilliant. That feels so exciting to be in an industry where being a straight white man is maybe not such a great thing. I mean, that's a revolution. That's an absolute revolution. And I'm now being asked by broadcasters to actively look for black and Asian programme makers and so if I was a straight white male director in Factual now, I would be a bit worried, to be honest. I really would, because finally broadcasters want something else. They want other people making programmes, not just the same old people that have always done it. I mean, you know, I'm not, that you know, that's quite idealistic, but I'm in a process at the moment of doing that, definitely doing that, and discriminating against straight white men actively. It's complicated because it means that often the people that you're giving the jobs to don't have the same level of experience and they don't have the confidence. And that confidence thing is so important. And so it means it will put more demands on me and the series producer to support that person. But if that's what it takes, then fine. For Dahlia, it is important that this doesn't come across as a crusade against white straight men. My sons are white. I don't know if they're straight. I think one of them is definitely straight. I don't know about the other one. I, you know, who knows? And the thought of them being discriminated against for who they are disturbs me the same way that it disturbs me the fact that black people have been discriminated against because of that or gay people have been discriminated against because of that, you know, talking about my CV and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not suggesting that... I just think what needs to happen is some room needs to be made. And for those men... Those straight white men who are maybe not getting jobs, I think they need to just allow for that room, allow for things to settle, allow for, for the world to change shape a little bit. And, you know, and not moan. Look at what, what's gotten to where they've got to and try and support other people, mentor people, mentor, help people, try and, try and put something back, I guess. So where are the challenges for the LGBTQ community currently? I think a lot of people think that the experience isn't... I think they think, oh, they're just like us, but they just happen to sleep with somebody of the same gender. So I think I think there's a lot of that, actually. I don't know. I don't, I don't think we're sort of brought... necessarily brought into the same groupings of intersectionality sometimes because I think most people think, oh, I've got gay male friends and oh, there's loads of gay men in telly and there's loads of lesbians on telly. Look, there's Sue Perkins and Sue, Susan Cameron, blah, 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 and Sandy Toxwick and da, 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 da. So I kind of think, I think there's less, less attention paid to it. And actually, in some ways, that's just as well because now the big battle is about, to my mind anyway, the big battle is about black and Asian people and getting them into 
the industry properly, particularly black people, young black men, actually. I mean, not. I mean, there are more. I've certainly come across more black women in telly than I have black men. So that's the battle now. And I think what's important to me in terms of the lesbian and gay thing is that we get to tell our own stories. That's really important. That we just don't don't have straight people assuming they know. Because you do get that quite a lot. Oh, but you're just like us. And actually, yes, we are in some ways, but in other ways we're not. You know, there are differences. What needs to change? I think that there needs to be less lip service and more action. Less about, oh, we really believe in diversity. And more, yes, we need diverse people to work on the broadest range of, of, of projects possible and we need those people represented in the in the content that they make and now particularly now I think there should be and rightly so there's a focus on on black people in the industry because that there's a huge gap there there's a big gap for Asian people as well but not quite as much I don't I don't know I haven't looked at the at the at the breakdown of it but that's how it feels and I think for lesbians and gay men it's just about making sure that there's a range of people and that, and that stories get told really she breaks it down confidence is like a muscle the more you use it the stronger it gets it is interesting that, that that's what broadcasters are asking us to do and at a time when you know the freelance world is in turmoil because of covid it's really difficult i'm not for a moment feeling gleeful about the fact that some people aren't getting jobs but the thing is that there will always be a certain amount of people that won't get that job you know if you're advertising a job 10 people go for it only one person's going to get it so it's just about that shifting slightly and i guess not just reacting against it and turning into sort of trumpian kind of incels but really looking at it and thinking about it it's really interesting when you interview people because, you know, confidence just does so much. But the problem with confidence is it can so easily tip into arrogance. And so when I interview people, I look for something other than just confidence. You know, look at drama, mainly probably 95% men. I mean, there's been great strides that have been happening, but but 95%, I would argue, probably. And that's all about people having confidence in your vision to deliver your vision and to deliver the vision that the channel wants. It's about who you give your confidence to, really. You know, do you give? Do you only give your confidence to that narrow band of people? I May Destroy You is a perfect example, you know, to give Michaela Cole what she wanted to do to get that series done exactly as she wanted to. And it's genius. I mean, it's groundbreaking. So it's not that scary. You've just got to pick the right people, I guess. It is so simple. It's such a no-brainer. It's such a no-brainer. And, you know, I've been banging on about it for so long. It's kind of having a, a myriad of voices telling their stories as well as other people's stories. You can only get better content. It can only be better. Why on earth would we want one group of people telling everybody's stories? It just makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. So... What advice would Dahlia give to young lesbians coming into the industry? I think I would say be proud of who you are. In the same way that that's you and very much your personality and who you are, take that with you to work. Don't edit it. Just be who you are and take your values with you and treat people well 
and people will treat you well. And just, you know, expect to tell your own stories. Expect to be able to tell your, tell your own stories. Be confident about that. Don't expect some straight person to be able to tell your story because you're the best person to do that. And if this girl experiences similar insults from similar men... Stand up to them. Just be brave and stand up to them and tell them to fuck off. Stop being an arsehole. Tell them that they're a dinosaur and they're dying, basically, because that's true, you know. They are. They're on their way out. And I know it doesn't feel like that now, but we have to believe that. We just have to believe that, that there will be a future of, of a big range of people working in the industry who are there because they're good at what they do, not because of where they were born and where they went to school and what they look like. And what about the future? The future is yours. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Really, really good. Finally, people are sort of trying to take other people's stories seriously, whose stories weren't taken seriously before. And yes, you will come across discrimination. Of course you will. But have the courage to stand up to it if it's really obvious and you can see it happening. Find an ally. Find allies. That's my biggest thing. If you're moving in, if you're getting into an industry, find some allies that you can connect with and who who can support you. Dahlia was quite reluctant to do this interview and it took her some time to come around, open up and share her experiences. But she did, and I'm super happy she did. Despite the real and potential backfire she may face, she showed her strength and courage, not by having a slick comeback to the insults and bullying she's encountered, but by speaking up now. Hers are stories of pain, but they lead to wisdom we should all learn from. As she said, There's been leaps and bounds for the LGBTQ community in the media industry, but like many other diversity issues, there is still a heck of a lot to do. We must come together, but this is only the beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Naked Stories. This show was edited by Michael Kalizinski. Sound designed by Anton Borove. Produced by Anna Zerjik, Jessica Lapsiwala and Tom Viskoski. Narratives written by Jessica Lapsiwala and myself, Rose Okipo. See you in the next episode for more non-filtered stories. For now, ciao bella. Ciao bella.